I'm Robert Bean, and this is Focus, Purpose, and Leadership. I decided to create this podcast because in my 40-year career in the advertising, communications, and brand strategy worlds, I've come to learn about the fundamental importance of clarity and purpose, or in my terms, the value of having a single organizing principle, one that influences a business's culture, its products and services portfolio, and its reputation. In this series, I'll be chatting with CEOs and leaders who have put it into practice whilst developing their own successful businesses. In this episode, I talk to Mark Chadwick, CEO and founder of EcoAct, a major European climate change consultancy. As you'll hear, he's optimistic about how business has embraced the need to address climate change, although concerned at the pace of change amongst some of the larger fossil fuel-based organisations. I joined him at his headquarters in King's Cross. I wanted to launch in really with going back to 2005 when I understand you launched the business Um, and just get a quick perspective from you on what was the climate change picture then and how does that compare with where we are now, you know, 15 years later nearly. Back in 2005, the climate change agenda was just about starting to reach widespread awareness. But it was still a fairly fringe topic. Here in the UK? Here in the UK and and globally as well. Mm. So that was pre-Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth movie, for example. And I think uh, within the corporate space, you had a few very leading organisations who were on uh, personal... Um, personal missions to do something about this. So um, Sky, for example, were one of the few organizations who had really started to grab hold of the agenda, talk about the agenda. They were carbon neutral even back then. Um, So it was quite an early stage. And consequently, a lot of the activity that I and my company used to undertake was education and awareness raising. And actually, this is one of the key learnings about uh, starting any business. It's your life will be far easier if you pick a business that addresses a demand that people currently know they have Mm. rather than one that you think they ought to have, but they're not yet aware of. (laughs) So there's an awful lot of Easy, isn't it, when you (laughs) know how? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. But this is what happens when you, you set off on a personal mission to try and do something that you feel is important. It sort of doesn't matter what the business environment is like. This is a, a, a crusade, it's a mission. And, and by the sounds of that, it was a crusade and a personal mission yeah, for absolutely. you then. I mean, there was a, a business opportunity, was there? I mean, or are you saying it was absolutely driven by the personal mission? It was uh, absolutely driven by the personal mission. But I also had a conviction that at some point in the future, all businesses will have to be sustainable businesses. Mm. I'd assumed that what that point in the future would be more proximate than it actually was. <laughs> and I think you can argue that it's still absolutely not the case. Businesses are still broadly not sustainable. But I, I still have that conviction that at some point in the future, all businesses will have to be sustainable. Because what's the alternative? Unsustainable. Yeah, clearly doesn't is, work. is not a place yeah, to be. Yeah. I think we have advanced an awful lot in terms of governmental awareness around this issue, governmental action. Um, I think we've advanced an awful lot in terms of the corporate awareness. 
And there are lots of organizations doing very, very ambitious things. Um, I think they're still in the minority, but, but it's okay because they're out there showing the business case, demonstrating value, um, encouraging other businesses that this is okay, this is not a scary thing to do. And actually this is generating business value because your customers want it and your employees want it and society as a whole wants it. And guess what? Government is legislating in this direction. So if you're on top of the agenda, that legislation will impact you less than if you're far behind the agenda. So there's all kinds of different value drivers that these leaders are demonstrating to others and others are starting to slowly follow. So it's good, and it's completely different to the situation in 2005. And I think the most recent uh, changes, when we wind back maybe a year or so, um, the financial community have started to get involved in this area now. And that's been driven a lot by um, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures that was set up a few years back. And this was set up by the Financial Conduct Authority because they could see clearly there was a a big gap in terms of what companies were saying about climate risk and what they were doing about it and what their actual climate risk was. So if you imagine, um, if you were to read the reports of a whole bunch of fossil fuel extractives, they wouldn't really be talking too much about the likelihood that huge proportions of their uh, oil reserves will never be able to be burned because of climate limits. And they won't talk about that openly because so much of their valuation is underpinned by those assets. Those assets, exactly, yeah. So, so therefore, yeah. that is very clearly uh, a, a market failure. Mm. They should be explaining to their investor communities that there's a chance that these assets of ours will, not able to be, will never be able to be realized. There's mm. a chance. Mm. And so what the task force asked companies to do is completely change how they report risk. Think about scenarios and say, if this scenario was to happen, what would that then mean to me? So that means they're saying to a fossil fuel company, okay, assume that the legislation and the changes in in our economy and um, all of these changes to your business were to take place so that we limit global warming to less than 1.5 degrees, what does that mean to your business? So that, what that would mean in that scenario is those fossil fuel extractive companies would have to say, well, how much of our reserves would we really be able to burn in that scenario? And if that was only the assets that we're, we could realize, what would that actually mean from us, from a cash flow perspective, from an investment perspective, from a balance sheet perspective? So this is a whole new way of doing it. So what alternatives do companies like that have? Because, you know, for those major companies, on the face of it, that is cataclysmic. Absolutely, yeah. So they offsetting? If you're uh, an extractive business whose value is underpinned by fossil fuels, your alternatives are limited to trying to find other ways of generating energy that don't result in greenhouse gas emissions. If under that, one, that scenario where we say we are limiting global warming to a, to mm-hmm. a quote-unquote safe level, and by the way, I don't think 1.5 degrees is safe and 2 degrees certainly isn't safe. I'm not sure there is a safe level. But let's say for assumption 1.5 degrees of warming is quote-unquote safe. Then they have to think about alternative energy sources. But there's a huge world of opportunity around renewable energy of different sorts. There's a huge opportunity around things like carbon capture and storage, which is the sort of... Uh, go-to excuse for the fossil fuel extractive firms they'll say well it'll be okay because we'll capture the carbon and we'll inject it under the sea and everything will be fine well okay great 
But why aren't they, as, a, as an industry, investing more heavily in making that technology happen? Because there are very few cases where it's being proven to work, and certainly not economically. So given that there's an existential threat for their entire industry, if they really were buying into this and they were really into this agenda, they would be doing an awful lot more to make carbon capture and storage happen. So just going back a step then, when you talk about these very large uh, fossil fuel-based businesses and the threat to their assets, what about your more regular up-and-down businesses, but perhaps the bulk of your client base? I mean, I, I know you do work with the very largest of the large, but you also got lots that aren't, hmm. in that sense, as exposed. And perhaps perhaps even coming at it from less of a fear base and more of a, there's an opportunity here base. Yeah. So it has been the case that less energy intensive and less fossil fuel dependent organizations were the ones that made the first moves towards this agenda. Mm. Was it because they were chasing an opportunity rather than mitigating a risk? What was the early driver? I think it's probably a combination of their stakeholders expected it and there was a way to differentiate so there was a real opportunity to take new messages to their client base and to incentivize their staff and make new recruits feel very happy to join them and the, the, the second factor is that it was a lot easier for them so if you're a uh, supermarket you're quite energy intensive there's you know things like refrigeration and other areas so even though it's quite a large material part of their um, energy consumption actually isn't an existential threat for a supermarket. No. They can still manage. Yeah, yeah. So they're able to do things like, uh, you know, put solar panels on the roofs so that they can mitigate that energy requirement and you do it renewably. Um, some of the really big ones have done things like put anaerobic digestion on their site so they can take food waste and turn it into energy. So they're able to manage this energy consumption and this carbon emission without it causing any kind of existential threat to them. And that's great, because then they've got all these great stories that they can take to their stakeholders, and they can save money in the process, and, and that's, that's uh, relatively easier to, to you make adapt. Happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and those are the kinds of companies who've really tried to lead the charge on this one. Less advanced in terms of their, uh, the ambition of their programs have been these organizations who really have the existential threat that is... Uh, uh, bound up in, in climate change. I am, though, quite encouraged to see that um, in our FTSE 100 research that we did this year, in the top 20 uh, in the FTSE 100, we're now starting to see some of these really heavy emitters starting to appear, which means that they're beginning to ad address this agenda, report actively on this agenda, take on programs around this agenda, make commitments around this agenda. So in the top 20 this year, for the first time, we have Anglo-American and BHP Billiton, who have emissions that you measure in the millions upon millions of tons. So materially different from a supermarket or a bank or whomever else. And for them, this agenda doesn't have very simple solutions. Hmm. It takes them uh, more time and more research and more development and more investment to tackle this. So you imagine a, a mine that you know, a, an Anglo-American might operate, you have these enormous house-sized trucks who are carrying tons upon tons of material around. Tesla's not making any of those, <laughs> right? So not they've yet. got a whole different kind of challenge, yeah. but they, they are now starting to really publish um, a lot of commitments and really push that agenda. So I, I feel like we're, 
we're at a point you know, where, where we should feel very optimistic. So, but, so as far as you're concerned then, when these companies come to you with, here's an exposition of our problems, there's only so much you can do with telling them to replace their trucks or whatever mm -hmm. else it might be. So what are the tools that you draw on to help them mitigate? And I think most of it is mitigation, isn't it? So one of the first challenges we have with companies we work with is how do we bring information into the business? How do we get the data so that we can begin to understand what needs to happen? What you'll typically find then is if we were looking at an organization that is multi-site, you'll have some sites where operational efficiency is very high and you'll have other sites where efficiency is, is low. And, I, and I'm thinking about carbon and energy efficiency more than you know, sales of bread. Mm. So we would work with them to try to understand the differences, to try to find ways to improve the performance of the laggards, to try to find ways to uh, look for leadership or, um, or innovative options in the leaders so that we can move them in, in a planned way towards improving their, their carbon and energy efficiency. So that would be one angle. But that's sort of almost behind the scenes, under the covers, if you will. The other part of the program that is very important and can demonstrate early value is we would want to work out who is it within your ecosystem of stakeholders that is particularly interested in this agenda. And often that will be um, staff, often it will be new recruits, it would be um, investors, it would be customers. You know, so once you understand who's interested in their performance, we can then begin to understand what is it that those people want to hear. Mm. I'm sorry, I'm smiling because I can't help but think of where you know where to drill for oil, but it's the most inappropriate analogy. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I get they yes, do so absolutely. You, they you got, scope it to, to know where great to drill. data from where to drill for oil. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. 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 And so that's where, where to go and mine gold. I don't know. Let's let's you mine gold better. Yeah, Same well thing. Yeah, still a yeah, pretty uh, yeah, yeah. pretty energy intensive industry. Um, and from this, you can begin to form a plan. And the way we sort of we, we think about these things is we, we imagine a pyramid where at the base are all of those things that you need to do in order to comply with the expectations people uh, have of you. So you should produce data about this topic in your, your annual report. You should have a section on your website. You should um, file your uh, legal obligations with the government. You, you know, so there are a whole basic set of foundational things. And they're almost non-negotiable, non really. You just have to do them. There's another layer in the middle, which we think of, uh, we call it compete. And this is about understanding what your competition are doing in this area. So are any of them uh, ahead of you in certain areas? Are they doing things that you're not doing? And if so, why are they doing those things? And should you also be doing them? So you start to build up a set of activities that fit within the compete space. And then the final top piece we call lead. So this is trying to find those few things that differentiate you from everyone else that you can hang your hat on and you can go to market on. And the reason it's a, a, a pyramid is twofold. Firstly, the, the size of the wedges reflects the amount of different pieces of activity you will need to be doing. So Data scope at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. so, so that's, that's fairly clear. And the second reason it's a pyramid is if you try to do things that exist in the leadership space without first doing the comply piece and the, and the compete pieces, it's going to fall over. Mm. Because you expose yourself to uh, limelight and attention by doing things that are innovative. And it's very easy for somebody then to ask you a question, well, 
I noticed that you failed to submit your legal requirements on this topic. Why is that? Mm. And then the whole thing collapses. Interesting. Right. So so it's a pyramid for those two reasons. Yeah. And that helps us contextualize all of these things into a single framework that allows us to paint the picture for our clients about it's very interesting i'm very fond of walking around stealing actually a phrase that came from the advertising industry about nothing kills a bad product quicker than good publicity yep and it's what you're talking about really. absolutely you, know, you do something innovative and people are interested you've sh- you've shone a, a light on what might be a flawed beast so yep. i get that you pop your head squarely above the parapet and uh invite yourself to be shot at yeah, really with no armor absolutely so, so well, I wonder if I can localise this then. Um, your own marketplace, in other words, the, the, the supply side of advice consultancy, mm-hmm. presumably has grown hugely since you started 2005 too, I guess. I mean, as yeah. the industry has grown, it must have brought lots yeah. of yeah, I would say so. experts and advisors. And I'm interested to know how you've applied some of the things that you espouse to your clients here within your own business that's that's one question and the other is as a service based business which it is how you've coped with having your voice heard in what's been a really noisy marketplace yeah it's sometimes difficult to apply the advice we give to our FTSE 100 massive global organizations to our uh, circa 40-person advisory firm and office in London or our you know, 110-person international advisory firm. Um, the kinds of issues and problems that they have and the stakeholder base that they have are very different. So we have a program that's more internally driven and it's more driven by the needs of uh, needs and wants of our team who are by the very nature of the work we do extremely engaged by this agenda so small things like uh, recycling we're pretty fanatical about uh, composting we're pretty fanatical about um, energy efficiency in our building we're pretty fanatical about Um, but we do have challenges because we are um, serving an international client base and so where we really have problems are when we're traveling to meet clients. And we do often have to fly. Um, and that's a real challenge. So, so we are not able to control our emissions in anywhere near as well as any of us would like. So we try to do what we can to push other alternative modes of, of travel. And we do try to, um, to deal with that. But we're always inevitably left with um, a, a small but growing carbon footprint. And our approach has been for years to make sure that we offset those emissions with very high quality um, international carbon projects. And of course, that is very much a a part of our our day job as well. Um, But what we do to try to make this live a little bit more internally is we we always have a a program at the end of every year where we offer a range of different uh, projects to our staff. And then we'll have some internal voting and discussion around it so that we can get a little bit of buy-in during the process. We would absolutely prefer it if we could avoid the, uh, the flights and the emissions in the first place. But very often, us, like many of our clients, can't do that. But there have been, I think, various projects that you've run in, in Africa or abroad. Mm-hmm. Where, so perhaps you could tell us a bit 
about some of those? Yeah, sure. So for us, the very important part and an important lens to think about when you, you think about carbon offsetting projects is you can save carbon in many different ways. The best ways are ways that in the process of saving carbon, you're delivering some kind of livelihood and development benefit to the participants. So we're very uh, passionate about making sure that we are delivering an impact whenever we're out in these countries delivering carbon savings. So uh, one of the projects that we've been working on for probably more than 10 years now looks to um, improve the the cooking devices that are used in in families in Sudan. So it was the first project, uh, carbon project, anywhere in the world that was delivered in a conflict zone. Um, We've won UN awards for it. And um, it has transformative impacts on the lives of the families who participate in it. And, of course, it also saves carbon emissions. And the, uh, the way it does that is really straightforward. You're taking an inefficient cooking device that burns wood and replacing it with a, a modern cooking, cooking device. What, but what we are doing is we're saying to this family here, here is a modern cooking device that doesn't fill your house with smoke, that you can turn on and you can use instantly without having to go out into the environment and gather sticks and bits of wood. So we're freeing up time for typically the women and the the young girls in that family to do other things. So they're doing things like going to school and they're doing things like uh, the mothers will go and do um, work and earn extra income. And using that extra income, they'll be able to improve their lives in small ways. Now that the kitchen is not full of smoke and, and a toxic environment, the women that we work with are reporting that their husbands are now venturing into the kitchen to actually make themselves you know, cups of tea or whatever. So previously, they wouldn't go in there. Yeah. It was awful. So you're changing the world. And that's all delivered through carbon savings. If international organisations were not willing to buy those carbon credits, those stoves and those projects wouldn't be happening and those development benefits wouldn't be happening. So you're selling carbon credits, the proceeds for which are helping fund this sort of initiative? Absolutely. So that is a kind of giant offset programme, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Mm. So you look through the common thread of the projects we're directly involved in, and they all have really uh, powerful and impactful livelihood benefits. So, you know, in some ways, when, when organisations say to me things like, oh, well, I don't believe in offsetting, I, I, it does sort of perplex me slightly. I mean, why wouldn't you? So what is it that they don't believe in? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not (laughs) sure. And and also, I I mean, the risk of taking this too much at face value, isn't it simply the easiest, laziest, most expedient way of making contribution? I mean that in a good way, you know. Absolutely. I don't need to do a great deal, do I, provided I engage in in offsetting? I mean, it seems to be an answer for everyone. It's quite easy to do. If you're a corporate that has a budget, it's quite easy to do. Yeah. The process broadly looks like you call somebody like us and we come along and we talk to you about what's important to you and where do you operate and then we go and look around the circa 1,000 projects that exist in the market, some of which are ours, some of which belong to other people and we'll come back to you with a list of ones that we think really fit well with the kinds of things you're doing. Mm. So you know, for example, uh, one of our clients is Barclay Group, the house builder. So we did a a, a thorough look around the international carbon offsetting market and one of the projects we found in South America is improved efficiency in uh, ceramics and brick making. 
So the clear analogy between what they do as a huge consumer of bricks and what these guys are doing to really try to make that a more efficient low carbon process. Yeah, yeah, right. So these are the kind of things yeah. that we do. And what we're trying to do is maximize the, the sense of identity and connection that the stakeholders for the client will feel towards the project. Yeah. Well, that, that actually is a perfect segue for me to come back to question two in that pairing. Um, because without saying the words, what you've kind of said about that last example is that you were providing there for them intelligent sustainability, which I, we're, we're both smiling because that is the original work that we did Absolutely. together was was ended up there, didn't it, about being intelligent. But actually, that's a very the one you, the example you've given is a very good example of what intelligent sustainability looks like in the real world. Can, yep. can I come back though to a question that's been perplexing me for a long time, which was why on earth did a company this size way back then, doing what you do, ever want to engage in a hugely expensive consultant to come in and do <laughs> a single organizing principle exercise? Um, it always felt like a long way away from the core of what you do and yet not only have we done it the once but mm. and we'll come back to this since you've merged with the French group we've gone and done it again so I'm just interested in what your interest in that sort of brand focus work was yeah well when we first met it was probably many years ago wasn't it 2011 maybe perhaps perhaps um yeah, and I listened to your, um, your your talk and we discussed the idea of single organizing principle and it just strikes me as really common sense. I mean, this idea that you need to seek alignment in terms of the various different ways that you see yourself and the, the products that you uh, produce and the way that your customers see you just seems to make sense. Mm. We're all really passionate about sustainability and we're passionate about climate and we want to make sure that uh, all the aspects of sustainability are being addressed. And we were starting to get into a situation where scope creep was kind of fit, creeping into the way that we, we operated. And we needed to fix that, really, because that would mean we'd losing efficiency. It means we're chasing after projects and, and solutions that actually aren't core to how we operate. So there was that external factor which was quite important to me. And people would ask, well, what is it exactly that, that we do? And it was very hard to make a very clear, you know, succinct answer to that. And the second part, I think, was I, I believe and I was attracted to the idea that if we can codify our values really well, that will help us to um, recruit the right people it will help us to improve our messaging and, and, and how we communicate to make sure that's all aligned. And, and even gives us tools that we can start to build into an appraisal process. And we can, we can then discuss whether an individual's behavior was on values or not. So that's, uh, I guess, a, a step in the way to deliver, uh, on the road to delivering a, a single organizing principle, but actually was something that for me was really valuable. And have you done much of that then? I mean, has it affected the recruitment process and the appraisal system and the messaging and which products we or services we develop and which we don't. Is yeah. it organising you? Absolutely. Um, I, I think the immediate impact we had was taking the values into our recruitment process. And when we 
looked at recruits that hadn't worked out for some reason or another, and we applied the values to those individuals retroactively. Guess what? It became fairly clear yeah. that in one or another of the dimensions there was an issue. Yeah, how interesting. Yeah. And we, we yeah. knew that in all cases before we made the hire that didn't work out, we had a suspicion of feeling right. Yeah, yeah. Not right, but, yeah. but everything else looks great. Yeah, yeah. So we went ahead and we hired that individual. And then often they would either select out because they didn't quite feel our culture was right for them or we didn't feel they were quite right for our culture. And so, you know, the, when you start to, to retroactively look at these situations, you can see how the values really impact the success or, or otherwise of a, of a recruit. So then we, we started to formalize that process of looking on a values-by-value value basis with each of the people we, we bring in. And if they didn't meet one or another of the values, even if all the others were great, we then would not proceed to hire that individual. And it's been really good. Yeah. Did you, as a matter of interest, brief the headhunters on this stuff as yeah. well? You did? Yeah. Yeah, great. So it starts way upstream. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah excellent. And then uh, when you then think about how do we communicate with the external world, the combination then of the values and the single organising principle then come into the fore. And we can analyse products or services we're planning to offer to see whether they are actually aligned with the organizing principle and if they're not then either they need to be changed or we probably need to not do them Mm. Um, so I think it's a very hard working tool actually just to so taking that on um, you merged year before last yeah and I'm interested to know the extent to which the organising principle and the values that you've been talking about played a part in that process of when you're looking at each other, mm-hmm. you know, and you're and you're taking their clothes off, as it were. Are you finding similar values underneath there with them? Uh, how much of that sort of stuff was brought into the equation as you're making the assessment? Should we? Shouldn't we? I was very clear and clearly able to articulate our values to them using the language that we developed through the single organising principle. And we absolutely had those conversations. But what we were able to do is do a matching exercise between the values that we could articulate and the values that were articulated in the ECOAC business. And we could see the alignment. It was fairly clear that we were out there trying to do the same things, we were focused on the same mission, and that we had broadly similar um, Value values, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the, pre, the the key difference was articulation. I think we were perhaps more granular, and we, we and and we had um, worked them a bit harder internally. Mm, more embedded, as you say. Yeah. But that's very much, I think, because we went through a process with an external that was uh, rigorous, uh, been done many times before, and able to then take us through that process in in a, in a different way. And, and do you feel that they, they, as in the French colleagues, are now as embedded in the common values and this stuff lives as front of mind for them as it did for you? I see some very positive signs, you know, when they, um, on the blackboard in the, 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 the lunchroom in the office in Paris, the values are written. Um, so I, I can see that the, the, process, the embedding process is, is happening. But I would say the embedding process in both 
main officers isn't as strong yet as we had the last time. So we came up with a new set of values that were collectively owned, uh, but we've got work to do mm. because the team here in London still refer to the old values probably more than they do to the new. Mm. So you, certainly one of the things that we need to do is communicate much harder on the new values and we will be doing that this year mm. just to try because they're actually very, very similar. But just one near final question then. For you, that kind of work, do you think the greater value is the internal one, which is aligning everyone, motivating everyone, providing a sense of purpose, focus and clarity? Or do you think it's the external one, which is by being distinct, we have an offer that clients might see more clearly than our competitors do? And I know you're going to say both. Mm. But, but I'm just interested in what preponderance either or the other has. I think it's extremely difficult to separate the two things. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I meet a lot of businesses and organisations who will, to me, appear to have a different internal vision, of them, uh, their, their internal vision, and, uh, and try to paint an external vision that, in some way isn't aligned to how they see themselves internally and I, and I see it quite often and I think that's really you, it's typically unsuccessful so I find it quite difficult to separate the internal and the external and, and therefore it's a whole I would say you can't separate it if you, if you try to do oh well I'm just going to do the um, I'm just going to go and use single organising principle to identify my key customer my key buyer or I'm just going to use it to try to uh, figure out what my product set should be or it just doesn't work it won't work because authenticity requires it to be uh, aligned inside and outside and and I think brands ultimately will fail if they try to um, separate these two things and but you know it's amazing how often I see it you know especially in our industry you'll find campaigning organizations who are passionate about some agenda item, but then they'll try to paint a different picture to a corporate that they might want to sponsor a program. Actually, they might think what that corporate's doing is really appalling. Uh, you know, they, they really shouldn't be doing that anymore. However, we'll try and work with them to, to deliver a program because I need that to maintain my own survival. But okay. it's inauthentic, isn't it? It's inauthentic, yeah. and sooner or later... Not sustainable. People are going to realise, yeah. well, that, that yeah. doesn't seem right. Yeah. They'll be caught yeah. campaigning <laughs> behind be the caught. curtain, talking, <laughs> you know, it, it's just yeah. not, yeah. It's not yeah. right. And so I'm, I'm going to refuse to separate the two. No, uh, fair enough. I, 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 and, I, <laughs> and actually, I, I think in a, one of the reasons I asked the question was, I think in a service-based business, that's almost certainly the case, isn't it? That the way the people are internally almost can't help but be the way yeah. they are externally. So Absolutely. it is quite hard to divide. It, it was a slightly cheeky question. Although, I, you know, I suspect in many service organisations that's not right either. Yeah, that, so that's... That, and it of course, ought to be the case for service organisations, but it but no. possibly isn't always. And the bigger they get, the harder that is to... Yep. to. All right, well, well, one last question then. Uh, uh, I'd like to go back to the start... Um, you talked about the, you, this came from a personal mission hmm. and here we are nearly 20 years later you're in the UK you're in France, you're in Spain you're in the US Turkey yep. and there may be more that I've missed out 
What was that personal mission and is it as bright and alive today as it was when you were the callow youth then? So the genesis of the of the mission and you know the 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 risk of being cheesy uh, this topic entered into my awareness not coincidentally at the time when uh, my wife was pregnant with my daughter so the first child and that necessarily i think or often creates a a bit of introspection and a little bit of a long-term view that perhaps one wouldn't have had before and certainly in my case that led me to start to read about climate change as, a, as an issue. Um, and what I read really started to, to alarm me. And I could see that without some serious effort societally, we would have a major problem on our hands. And it would be a problem that would possibly affect our generation, but would certainly affect the generation of our kids and their kids. So I could have switched off all the heating in the house and you know (laughs) gone around telling people to wear extra sweaters and you know all that stuff and making any lifestyle change I would have wanted instead I thought what I need to do is find points of leverage so I need to find ways to get other organizations or other consumers or whomever else could could I could rally to actually also make similar commitments and to um, make progress and I think we've been fairly successful in doing that. It's taken longer than probably anybody would have expected. Um, now, I feel really optimistic. The job not done yet, for sure, because the pace of change is still too slow. Governments, companies, individuals all need to move much faster than we are doing. But progress has been made and we're in a much better place than we were. And I feel like we've got a really decent chance of limiting extremely dangerous climate change. So, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about it, really. Great. Well, I can't think of a better way to end it then. I'm leaving with a sense of optimism and hoping that they put a few more electric charging points around London because that would make a big difference to me. Yeah, it's happening. Great, Mark. Thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you. And more power to your elbow. Always a pleasure. (laughs) Thanks again, Mark. Please do subscribe to the podcast in your usual podcast app to get new episodes when they're released. If you have any comments or questions, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. It's robert at robertbeanbranding.com. Thanks for listening.